Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it's a great thrill for me today to be talking to Dan Chasen, um, a, um, a writer and critic poet um, who, as we were saying before we started recording, we feel like friends. Um, I don't think we've met in, in person, um, though, though surely we will. But, you know, how things go in our um, virtual world of um, connection and, and, and um, social networking. Um, Dan is um, here today to talk about a poem by William Butler Yeats, um, and the poem is called Among School Children. Um, this poem, as is always the case for us, um, you'll find uh, available to you um, via a link in the episode notes. So if you'd like to be looking at a text of the poem as we talk about it, um, just look there and you should be able to find it there. Um, we'll have lots more, obviously, to say about Yeats and to kind of set up the poem a little bit for people who are unfamiliar with it. But this is a real treat. It's, um, you know, one of those um, great and canonical works of the 20th century. And it's um, it's a thrill for me to get to um, talk about it with a critic whose work I admire as much as I do Dan's. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Dan before we start. Um, Dan Chasen was born and raised in Burlington, Vermont. And he received his BA from Amherst College and his PhD from Harvard. Um, Dan is the author of six books, uh, five of them books of poetry, collections of poetry, um, and and one a, a work of literary criticism. That book, to start with, that one is called "One Kind of Everything: Poem and Person in Contemporary America," and that was published by the University of Chicago Press in two thousand seven. Um, the Dan's, I, I won't give you the titles here of all of Dan's books of poetry, but I, I will certainly make them available to you via links um, with the information that comes out with the show. His most recent book of poems, though, is called The Math Campers, and that was published by Knopf in 2020. And um, I'll say more about that in just a moment. But right now, Dan is at work on a very different kind of project and an exciting one. He is working on a study of politics and change in American life. Um, the book is called Bernie for Burlington, His Rise in a Changing Vermont, 1964 to 1991. And the book is based partly on Dan's own close observations of Sanders, Bernie Sanders, that is, obviously, since um, that, that Dan has been making since he was nine years old. Um, so, um, I, I think even there, there, there might be some occasion to hear more during this episode about Yates, to hear more about, um, Bernie Sanders and, and, and how, how it happened that, that Dan Chase and poetry critic, um, found himself writing this book. Um, listeners to the podcast will no doubt already know and have read Dan Chasen in the pages of um, the New Yorker, where for many years, Dan was a regular um, and has been a regular reviewer of poetry and, um, um, and, and also will have read Dan in the New York review of books where he um, has frequently contributed as well. Um, Dan Chasen is the Lorraine Chow Wang professor of English at Wellesley college where he teaches um, and where he has revealed to me he has um, just um, finished teaching for the semester and is now yeah. bound for sabbatical, um, yeah. a glorious thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to say just a word about the kind of critic that, that I found Dan to be. Um, I first got to know, I mean, to the extent that I know him, I, I got to know him in the pages of The New Yorker. Um, 
where um, I was always very pleased to see a new piece by Dan on a poet, sometimes a poet I knew very well, sometimes a poet I, I didn't know until I, until I read the piece. Um, now I can think of pieces that Dan has written on, um, you know, like for me, an important early review of Citizen, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, um, Dan wrote um, pieces on um, poets who are um, uh, quite close. I, I, I get the sense quite close to Dan personally, poets like um, Jory Graham. Um, uh, Dan wrote a beautiful piece on um, after the poet W.S. Merwin passed on, on Merwin. Um, you know, so I've just been naming some big name heavy hitters in in the poetry world but but uh you know another thing i've come to appreciate about dan is that he's um he's always been quite interested enthusiastic and open to writing about poets at earlier moments in their career or more obscure moments in in the history of poetry and and in bringing those um to the readers of that um magazine he seems to me to be a critic who's aware of his own um, situatedness of his own tastes of his own background um, you know um, for for people like me and Dan and for you know many of the guests we've had on the podcast particular particularly um, critics and scholars of poetry in the 20th century and the 21st century it has it's it's a kind of commonplace to observe that that period our period, historical period in, in poetry studies in particular, is a kind of divided one, um, a, a, a one in which, you know, poets and critics settle into opposing camps and um, know the work of their camp uh, very well, but have no interest in in things outside of that or feel a kind of animosity. Often this story gets exaggerated um, and, and maybe leaned on too heavily. Um, I think in reading Dan Chasen's work um, in the New Yorker and elsewhere, I've always had the sense of um, I, I know where he's coming from. I, I feel that's true, but I feel like his curiosity is always leading him well beyond the the sort of safe walls of any particular um, garden. And that's, um, that's a, a pleasure to see. Um, I, I get the sense reading Dan that he's always um, trying things out. Um, trying out a new book, trying out a, a new way of um, thinking about poetry and inhabiting those positions with great sympathy and imagination. You know, and, and part of this is, the, I think, the product of a poet's imagination. I mean, Dan is a poet. Uh, the, the Math Campers, for instance, his last book, it's just a beautiful book, um, is a book that I picked up and read. And it's, it's kind of a funny story and a personal one, but a, a book that I picked up and read just as I was heading to the place from which Dan wrote much of it. <laughs> so <laughs> many of the poems in that book sort of are set. I mean, it's hard to say where a poem is ever set, but uh, the, you know, maybe we could talk about that. I think we actually, we should talk about that in this episode, but um, you know, to put it plainly, um, some of those poems seem to have been written while Dan was a resident at the James Merrill house in Stonington, Connecticut, and are sort of about that setting yeah. um, or describe that setting. So I was on my way to the James Merrill house and I had Dan Chasen's book and poems in mind with me as I went there. And the, you know, the, the, the book inhabits that space in a, I mean, it, it, it can feel like a haunted space, like a space that's sort of layered with memory. Because um, for those who don't know, um, Merrill, um, who's a poet that we talked about way back in the earliest days of this podcast, and I hope we'll get to have more episodes on soon, um, didn't just live 
in this um, home in Stonington, Connecticut, but himself wrote about it and had sort of spooky experiences within it and wrote about those spooky experiences. So the his poetry is full of um, thinking about the afterlife. Um, Dan's experience in that space seems to have been one that was full of haunting of various kinds as well. Um, but it's also a playful kind of inhabiting. And, um, and uh, there's a, a beautiful kind of innocence in the work of Dan. He's, he's a writer, um, in short, whom I value because he always seems to me to be also, and first and foremost, a reader. Um, and so it's, it's a great pleasure for me to have Dan Chasen on Close Readings. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm good, Cameron, but I'm actually going to go now because I just showed up <laughs> to be introduced. Um, and, uh, mission accomplished. Uh, that was so lovely. You are a writer that I admire so much. Um, your own curiosity, your own generosity, um, your own just insight. And it's, you know, it's been transformative to read you over the years and to recently tune into many of these mm -hmm. episodes, which have been terrific. And so I'm really honored to be here, first of all. Uh, it is eerie. It does feel like we're friends. I guess we were, you know, sort of nursed on the self same hill, as Milton says. Yeah, something or like similar that. Hill, adjacent hills. Adjacent hills. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and rival I didn't hills. Know that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I guess I'd forgotten that that you were headed to Stonington to uh, to uh, to take up residence at the Merrill House. You I gave you gave me very good advice, which I um, about you know what to pack and how, how I should prepare right. for that setting. So yes. you know, I was thinking of you while I was there. One is in demand there. So I have to <laughs> do, I don't know, gentle, kind, good fences make good neighbors type. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As, uh, as someone once said, um, right, right, right. Okay. So, uh, well, um, I, I won't let you go. Having just been introduced, the price of the introduction <laughs> is that you need to stick around Dan. and talk about a poem for an hour. Um, so Dan, um, tell me, you know, you know, for people who are, again, maybe this is your first episode, um, I invite a guest on, someone who's writing about poetry I admire, and then I tell them to, you know, they're free to choose the poem. And I give, you know, very few sorts of parameters beyond that. So how did, how did she come to think about Yeats for this and this poem in particular? And, and maybe by way of giving an answer to that question, Dan, you'll also see opportunities for telling listeners who don't know much about Yeats at all or about where this poem might fit into his career to tell us something about those things too. Oh, sure. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, I chose it on a whim, to be honest with you. I think I had a couple of drinks, uh, <laughs> and, but I, I love the poem, of course, and have a long, 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 I mean, it's one of the first great poems that I, you know, came to know and love and partly memorize when I was in high school. So it goes, I go way back with it. I don't understand it as a single contour. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, op I'm interested in my own incomprehension of this poem. Um, and so it's an opportunity really just to talk over this poem with somebody like you, whose uh, sense of it will be enlightened, enlightening. So uh, yeah. that was, that was the thought. Um, it's a strange, you know, everyone knows the famous finale of the poem. Yeah. Um, the how can we know the dancer from the dance is a phrase that has its own life in the culture. Yeah. It's the name of an important novel by Andrew Holleran that I have not read, but I sort of know where it sits in the culture. Um, it's broken off, you know, yeah. from the poem in, in fascinating ways. So 
uh, yeah, I guess I understand it in parts, but not as mm-hmm. one, not as one slope. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons, selfish reasons I wanted sure. to discuss it. Um, I'll say a little bit about what it means to me. Uh, and then I'll just tell you what little I can tell you about Yates and about the crossroads, uh, that he, uh, had met when he wrote the poem. Very good. Um, yeah. yeah I, so the poem is set in a, in a convent school um, in Waterford in the south, uh, southwest of Ireland, which was run by the Sisters of Mercy. It just so happens that uh, another great poet, Dan Chasen, was educated <laughs> by the Sisters of Mercy. No kidding. Uh, it was educated by the Sisters of Mercy. But, I, but, I, but I was, it was uncanny to me in high school, uh, at Catholic school, having already been in Catholic school since I was three years old, you know, to come upon this poem about nuns. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's been poignant for me. Uh, the opening scenario has always been poignant uh, uh, for me for that mm-hmm. for that reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a poem I first read um, in high school, not in a high school class, but I was giving myself an education during the summers. I was going up to the UVM library, University of Vermont library, where they had, you know, nice stacks to rifle through. And um, I just put a little curriculum for myself together and this poem was on it. And I discovered it there one August day, probably 1986 or seven. Um, Mm And so it's sort of uncanny personal resonance for me is something that's I've, I've held uh, with me all, all along. And, and also it's sort of position within popular culture, within literary culture. It's a modernist poem that uses the word modern. I think it's right. interesting to think mm-hmm. about where it sits within modernism. Yeah. Um, so those are some, those are some, um, Good. impetuses for, for choosing the poem. Yeah. Yeats, uh, Let's see. Yeats tells us in the poem that he is, at this point, a 60-year-old smiling public man. The poem was um, written in, uh, begun in 1926 and published in 1928 in Yeats's volume, The Tower. Um, Yeats, at this point, is as distinguished a literary figure as any country really has ever known. He won the Nobel Prize in, uh, I guess, 1923, 23. Um, he is elected senator of the Irish Free State in 1922 and serves uh, for six years as a senator of this new sort of nation. Um, and in that role, he's on a committee in the Irish Senate that has him going around and inspecting uh, schools. Um, So in 1926, he goes to Waterford, Ireland with his wife, George, and they are taken around this uh, convent school run by the Sisters of Mercy. Um, There's a really amusing letter, uh, caddy letter by George Yates, which I can read you sections of when we, if we get to that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, there was a big reception. The Yates's were plied (laughs) with port and whiskey. Um, George refused to go back for the, it was a two day visit and she refused to go back for the second day and wrote Uh a letter about how revolting she found the nuns to be, how life denying and Uh um, Uh pleasure denying and so Uh on. So, um, 
other moment, other just elements of this moment in Yates's huh. career. He's just published his really uh, out there treatise called A Vision, which is based right. on his... Speaking of the occult, right? He's speaking and, of the occult, right. Yeah. Strong precursor for our friend J.M., James Merrill. Um, it, it has been sent out in an edition of 500, mainly to friends and associates, and it's gotten a very lukewarm response yeah. from people. So Yates is very self-conscious, I think, about his own... Um, eccentricity at this point uh, and about the mismatch between outside and inside the inside percolating with all these Mm. uh, occult ideas and um, arcane um, scenarios and the outside being, you know, this distinguished gentleman uh, acting Mm -hmm. as an official, as an official of the state. So that's, you know, that's the setup. I would say. Yeah. 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 And I, so that's that's all really helpful, Dan, and uh, and um, it tells me things that I, you know, to be honest, didn't know um, going into this conversation. So, you know, I personally appreciate the the context. Um, um, you know, one thing you mentioned, sort of in passing, was that you know Yeats is a modernist poet, and and you know th- that term itself, modern modernist or modernism, is um, is one that's by no means uh, has a kind of settled once and for all meaning. But just in a kind of ordinary um, sense or, you know, uncontroversial view of what the term might be taken to designate. Um, Maybe it's worth noting that, like, you know, when we think of other modernist poets, we just had an episode on William Carlos Williams, and I hope that we'll have other episodes on some of the leading lights of modernism. And you think of poets like... um, uh, Marianne Moore, T.S. Eliot, uh, Pound, um, poets of that generation. Yeats is a bit older than right. than all of them, and yeah. and perhaps closer in generation. At, you know, I don't know to, um, you know. So he begins in the, is a nineteenth century poet. In the kind of story I've always had in mind, the kind of thumbnail sketch of his career that I've always had in mind, and that there's something a sort of very romantic about the early Yeats. Yes. And that his career sort of spans into this more kind of politically engaged and then kind of realist mode or something like that. Now, no doubt that's um, an overly crude narrative and one could tell more nuanced versions of it. But That's my um, sense of it too. Yeah. I mean, if he'd stopped writing after the year 1900, he would still be remembered for poems right. done at the end of the 19th century. And so you might think of poems like The Lake Isle of Innisfree right. or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then Yeats is very helpful in that every time he makes a shift in his aesthetics, he announces it uh, as a shift and kind of celebrates it and makes it an icon. So I believe it's 1914, he publishes a book called um, Responsibilities um, that has the famous epigraph, um, uh, in in dreams begins responsibility. Or is it in dream begins responsibility? In dreams begins responsibility. Delmore Schwartz picked that title yes, up right. and altered it slightly and made it a very famous uh, short story. But yeah. the sense that Yeats is conveying is that the period prior was a, an, a long, elaborate dream in which he discovered um, a, a political, uh, yeah. Commitment. yeah. And part of the, part of the reason why I raise it, um, or just that sense of the development of a career or something like that in, in the case of Yeats and with respect to modernism, maybe as a movement or other literary movements that, you know, 
you know, with whose spans Yeats's life um, coincides is, um, is because as you noted, this is a poem in which he sort of dating himself and kind of hyper-conscious it seems in a way of this question of aging and phase of life and so on and well surely that's part of what we'll we'll want to talk about as we dig in um but i guess with that as preface um i would love to ask you to read the poem um into the record yep, <laughs> as it yeah. were for, for, for our conversation. <laughs> and again, just to remind people like you, you can look on um, at the, at the text that's linked to in the episode notes, the poem is, you know, perhaps somewhat on the longer end of poems that we've considered here. It's made up of eight, um, eight line stanzas. So it's a 64 line uh, poem, but um, Dan, I'll turn it over to you to read the poem. Okay, great. Um, yeah. It's in eight numbered stanzas. Uh, each one, written in Ottava Rima, which we can talk about. Um, And the question a reader of the poem, a reader aloud of the poem must uh, initially um, answer is whether to read the the numbers of the sections. And I I will read the numbers of the sections because I love the way the, in certain uh, passages, the syntax kind of vaults over the interruption of the the number. So I will read the numbers. Um, Okay among school children. One, I walk through the long schoolroom questioning. A kind old nun in a white hood replies. The children learn to cipher and to sing, to study reading books and history, to cut and sew, be neat in everything in the best modern way. The children's eyes in momentary wonder stare upon a 60-year-old smiling public man. Two, I dream of a Lydian body bent above a sinking fire, a tale that she told of a harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy. Told, and it seemed that our two natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy, or else to alter Plato's parable into the yolk and white of the one shell. Three, and thinking of that fit of grief or rage, I look upon one child or the other there and wonder if she stood so at that age. For even daughters of the swan can share something of every paddler's heritage and had that color upon cheek or hair. And thereupon my heart is driven wild She stands before me as a living child. Four, her present image floats into the mind. Did quattrocento finger fashion it hollow of cheek as though it drank the wind and took a mess of shadows for its meat? And I, though never of Lydian kind, had pretty plumage once. Enough of that. Better to smile on all that smile and show there is a comfortable kind of old scarecrow. Five, what youthful mother, a shape upon her lap, honey of generation had betrayed, and that must shriek, sleep, sorry, sleep, shriek, struggle to escape as recollection or the drug decide, would think her son, did she but see that shape with 60 or more winters on its head, a compensation for the pang of his birth, 
or the uncertainty of his setting forth. Six, Plato thought nature but a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. Solider Aristotle played the taws upon the bottom of a king of kings. World-famous, golden-thighed Pythagoras fingered upon a fiddlestick or strings what a star sang and careless muses heard. Old clothes upon old sticks to scare a bird. Seven. Both nuns and mothers worship images, but those the candles light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries, but keep a marble or a bronze repose. And yet they too break hearts. O oh, presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, and that all heavenly glory symbolize, O oh, self-born mockers of man's enterprise, Eight. Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O oh, chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O oh, body swayed to music, O oh, brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? So that's Dan Chasen reading um, our poem for today among school children by William Butler Yeats. Um, Dan, um, you know, sometimes when we have a recording of a poem, and I've heard some recordings, uh, as I'm sure you have too, of Yeats reading some of his poems, those, you know, yeah. slightly, you know, they're sort of later in his life yeah. and he's very sort of, None, they're interesting recordings. Maybe we yeah, can make Arctic some. And, uh, yeah. 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 Come on high. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, well, so what I was going to say is I sometimes ask after we listen to a recording for my guests to talk about just, um, what they were hearing in the way the poem was read. Yeah. Um, but I found myself wanting to ask you as, and particularly to ask you as someone who, you know, has, um, become well-practiced, no doubt at doing poetry readings, reading your own poems. Um, what is, what was the experience like of taking on this poem since that you've known as you've told us since you yeah. were a child that you you know memorized at some point um to to you know read it in its entirety out loud without interruption um what did you find yourself thinking about or noticing that maybe came as a surprise or that you yeah. hadn't really thought of in those terms before mm, thanks that's a wonderful question there is a double consciousness actually even though i affect absorption in the poem. I was, I was monitoring it, uh, even as I was reading it, partly that just comes from knowing the poem so well and knowing what's coming in the poem, you know, right. how do you set up what, who could be worthy of that amazing finale, you know? And I, I have mixed feelings actually about the, uh, the shape of the poem and how it manages the coming, um, yeah. You know, the amazing finale, the crescendo that's coming. So that was on my mind, how to kind of manage the effects leading into that um, fireworks show at the end. Yeah. Um, you know, also each, I think it's fascinating, each stanza manages the Atava Rima in a different way. It manages its apportioned eight lines in a different way, syntactically, organizationally. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and you really, to read it aloud, 
I mean, I think the, by far, and it's the, it is the stanza that I screwed up. Um, the hardest one to do aloud is the fifth stanza. It's just a single exquisite sentence. It has one, some of the most subtle and sort of baffling syntax that you can imagine. Um, don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, right. <laughs> but that, in that third line where, where I, I mean, I almost hate to mention, yeah, I know what you mean, um, yeah. where it happened. It gives you that sort of list of three things that begin with the letter S that are easy to misorder or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it does. And, you know, you really need to, uh, you need to give a sense of the shape of the meaning mm-hmm. in, a, in a sentence of that length and of that complexity and of that obscurity. It's not yeah. obscure. It's crystal clear. It's just its clarity is difficult. Right. So I feel, you know, I, I would I read, I, I can't, you know, I was conscious of, of putting stakes down for emphasis where mm-hmm. I felt meaning um, was dependent upon uh, 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 upon the way I the way I pitched a certain word or phrase. What what Yeats's um, contemporary Frost would call the sentence sound, right? Exactly, sort of letting us hear that. Yeah, yeah, and wow, what a sentence! You know, mm-hmm. eight lines long and tons of um, work with clauses and so mm-hmm. on. So I I was quite aware of that problem. Um, yeah, and as, as I say, each stanza sort of requires a different, um, yeah, yeah, just a sort of different verbal uh, disposition. I think it it, it does. It, it I mean, it strikes me that it's a poem that really. Um, I mean, though the stanzas are in some sense uniform in scheme, yeah. though not as you pointed out, even with respect to meter rhythm executed, yeah. um, similar, you know, in the in identical ways. Um, it, in, in terms of, um, and all of these things work together, of course, but in terms of tone and content and even oh. kind of rhetorical register, the stanzas are kind of wildly different from each wildly other. Wildly different. Yeah. As though he's ripping the first up before he gets right. to the second, you know? Right. Right. I, um, in stanza six, which is a sort of montage of sort <laughs> of montaged, uh, summarized. Like ancient philosophy. Ancient philosophy, of, yeah, right. Yeah. In three, in three quick mm-hmm flashes right that's one method of organization which he doesn't repeat um and then of course the the poem ends with the only example of a sentence which goes across stanzas leading it's a right the finale is really two stanzas long both seven section seven and eight and that feels like an innovation by that point in the poem. We've gotten used Absolutely. to settled into right, settled into a certain rhythm, and that um, suddenly is uh, turned over. You know, we sometimes like to say that poems um, mm-hmm. teach their readers how to read them, right? Yes. Um, and they do so. Sometimes the first line of a poem can teach you sort of what are the rules for this poem? How is it going right. to work? Um, sometimes it could be the first stanza of a poem, but. Right. But often, as as you point out here, I mean, it's unusual to have a poem that's sort of proceeding with, oh, I didn't know the poem knew that it could do that. Yeah, that it didn't feel that, Yeah, it's like it learned it somehow uh, on its own. <laughs> and you yeah. know what you, What was interesting to me before you started reading, Dan, was when you said, I mean, I knew what you were going to say when you said a reader of the poem has to decide whether I knew what you were going to say, has to read the numbered, you know, the numbers out loud. And then I was surprised to hear you say, that you wanted to because of the moment of bridging, which, you know, I think for other readers and other minds might be an argument against doing so. I think that's fair. That's totally fair. I can imagine the argument against doing it and might 
on another day and another mood choose not to read them. <laughs> to be clear, I wasn't making that argument. Yeah. Against. I was um, interested because I thought it might reveal something to us about your view of the kind of constructedness of the poem or the poem's own self-awareness of its, right. you know, Yeah, as a, you know, if one could be immodest enough to say that they've been influenced by such a poem, um, I do have a, a long poem in numbered sections that I was thinking, have I ever actually gone to this poem as a, mm. in the midst of composing a poem to figure out how to do something. Yeah. And I did do that one time. And that had to do with a poem called Where's the Moon? There's the Moon. And it has numbered, long poem in numbered sections where I want the syntax uh, to leap over the, the numbered uh, breaks. Good, yeah. good, mm-hmm. good. Well, let's, um, let's back all the way up. And I, yeah. have a, a, I have a question that is um, laughably um, sort of all the way back. So the first word of the title... <laughs> Yeah. Among. Um, it's, you know, it's so it's a preposition. It sort of situates yeah. the, the poem with respect to, you know, others, um, or it situates yeah. the, you know, as it were, the speaker of the poem or the I in the poem with respect to these other human beings that populate the poem. Um, do you have any thoughts about the preposition among and and sort of how the poem performs or enacts or thinks through the sort of state of being among as a it's a way of being. Yeah, that's a great question. And we're on the same wavelength because I was thinking in preparing this this afternoon about, about the preposition and other prepositions in mm-hmm. Yeats's titles, like under Ben Bulben, for example, Yeah, oh, um, something one. he does, you know, fairly often. But yeah, what does among do to us? It puts us, um, well, it puts us in society. It, we're... Um, and we're in the society of school children. So that means that a certain kind of propriety, a certain kind of respect mm-hmm. is called for on their part and, and on our part. Um, the last thing you want to do when you're among school children is disclose uh, the contents of your lurid uh, mind. And yet that's where <laughs> the poem almost immediately goes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it's contemplating the rules of amongness, of being a social person in a social world. There's a moment where um, Yeats decides better better to smile upon all that smile. Yeah. And that feels like a sort of synopsis of the rules of this yeah. world. Yeah. 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 I was thinking uh, that, that that's all beautifully said. Um, I was thinking that, um, you know, b- to be among is, is like to be with. But right. uh, for me, I don't know if this feels legit to you or to others, but um, among, to be among school children, I think, carries with it some consciousness of um, a, the kind of provisional nature of this arrangement. You know, yes. I'm among them now, but I won't be, you know, but it's only for the time being or something like that, you know. That's right. Um, right. And it makes you yeah. wonder, um, we talked about the setting of the poem. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the poem keeps returning to the out, outward, outside-facing setting, even as it keeps pivoting inward. And the and the difficulty, as it sort of buries itself farther and farther and farther into Yeats's interiority, is how to is how to maintain that amongness. It seems to me, you know, mm. how to maintain that position as his mind is leading him yes. far afield or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, the, the, the first word of the first line is the first person pronoun I. Yes. Um, and so, um, you know, I was tracking it 
I, I think I've got this right. I hope I do anyway. I'm about to read it for, I'm about to say something for posterity is that I think that I appears in each of the first four stanzas and none of the final four. That makes a lot of sense. You um, can see that as an important trajectory, I think, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah. you know, to, you know, the, and you've, you've gestured also to, to the um, kind of iconic status of the poem's final lines though. Um, I, I think for me, maybe to a slightly um, lesser extent, but nonetheless, the first line of the poem has its own kind of um, echoing yes. status. I walk through the long schoolroom questioning. And then that for people who aren't looking, that line ends with a semicolon. Right. So it sort of ends and doesn't end in a way. Um, it's so beautiful. In fact, yeah. it's so beautiful that it was taken up as the title of an important uh, essay and volume by Alan Grossman called... Uh, the Long Schoolroom. Uh, it's a wonderful essay for our listeners who um, yeah. want to seek it out. It's a meditation on poetic vocation and the stance uh, of kind of walking through um, walking through poetry itself, a long corridor from um, yeah. fellow practitioners and fellow questioners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for, you know, for real um, devotees to the podcast. Remember also we've had an episode on, on Grossman. Um, no, I didn't know yeah, I missed yeah, that one. yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta go back and get it. Um, Dan with, with, um, Oren Eisenberg, who oh, was, great. um, a student of Grossman's and, yes. and devoted to him. So, um, oh, Oren's brilliant. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. go and listen to that right away. Good, Sorry to have missed that one. Yeah. No, which that, poem, do you remember which poem that he did? Yeah, of course. Um, the life and death kisses, which is yeah, a, yeah. A, a strange poem, but, but related yeah. to the, um, to the, even the very brief kind of um, glimpse into Grossman's um, sensibility that you just gave us, Dan. Um, yeah. So why is the schoolroom long? I know. I, mean, I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> well, I asked first. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, long, maybe it just was right. Long but, is yeah. long is a word that has both spatial and temporal meanings. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what Grossman picks up is the notion of the, you know, just the duration of, um, of poetry and um, and and you know we're picturing some enormous enormous room with children and um, seated in orderly rows and orderly desks and so on and, uh, and there's a kind of review as the great man uh, walks down and steps in interviews mm -hmm. observes one mm -hmm. child after another so there's a lot in this first stanza that's kind of just, I would say that's sort of filmable. I don't know if Yates yeah. has seen many films at this point, but, yeah. but there's, there's, there, it's beautifully stationed yeah. uh, and blocked out in, in a way. So yeah. I think that's one reason for long. And the other is just the re resonance of the word long and how yeah. we are at 60 years now. Yeah. Uh, Yates is 60 years old and he's measuring his own aging and the kind of ironic ratios of the outward and the inward, the inward is still f full of passion and uh -huh. grief and uh, unsettled yeah. energy. And the outside has become this um, proper, respectable man. So, yeah. So I, I guess the brilliant, simple thing about long is that it pertains both to you know, distance and duration. And, and with respect to duration, I, I think the, the very clear implication I'm hearing you offer here is that it's long enough to include a student of his age. Um, yes. Or that, it, you know, it, it include or he's still in it in some sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's still a student. Right. Yeah. He's still learning. Um, um, huh? Yeah. And the, I mean, this first stanza. Yeah. Say, say whatever you like about it. Dan. What, 
Well, <laughs> um, I think the poem is a is about pedagogy. It's also a an act of pedagogy, so that the establishment of the sixty year old smiling public man as that fa- forceful final line of the opening stanza, in a way, kind of gives uh, Yeats uh, the mic or the platform, um, mm-hmm. a- a- and so you know, in a way, the the lesson from here on out will be his to give. Hmm. Um, at the beginning of the stanza, right, yeah. he's a he's he's a questioner, but by the end of the poem, you know, he's giving us definitions. Labor is yeah. blossoming, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. How, um, n- not to um, keep looping back to the very beginning, I promise we'll, we'll make better progress soon, dear listeners, yeah. but, and, and <laughs> dear guest. but um, Dan, how, how would that first line be different in your ear if it were, other than perhaps less good, if it were, um, I walk, um, I walk, comma, questioning, comma, through the long schoolroom. Right. Um, it, there's something kind of awkward sounding to me about the way that it is now, actually, yeah. um, that it, it, it kind of, uh, it, it almost feels like it sort of runs something unusual about that syntax or not idiomatic. And maybe I'm not picking up on some no, no. peculiarity of, uh, you know, what would have sounded perfectly idiomatic to the Irish or English ear. No, or something. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. I, and it's, if you look at the variora, variora, he struggled with the punctuation there. Um, mm-hmm. There was a magazine version in the dial, I believe, that had a comma. Mm. Um, there's also yeah. an unpunctuated version. It, it, it is, it's curious, isn't it? Um, I mean, it puts questioning in the terminal position, I guess, right. you know. Yes. Um, and then the nature of the questioning is sort of interesting because the, we don't actually know what the questions were. Right, um, right. And we are told that the kind old nun in White Hood replies but we're not really told what her question, what the questions were, or what the replies were. Yeah, and, and maybe we don't know because they're sort of what perfunctory, and yes. they don't really matter. Right? You know, they're they're polite, and oh, oh, what's this child doing? And you know, and oh, it's what very, are you, about, you know? It's possible. I mean, although this very funny letter from George Yates implies that the nuns were much more kind of ribald and raucous than oh. <laughs> than you would imagine. Um, so maybe it's propriety that keeps it out. It could be, it could be, Um, but um, right. And then again, we have this sort of filmable um, uh, sequence where the, you know, the the children learn to cipher and to sing, to study reading. I I, I imagine that these are the, these are the answers given by the kind old nun to the perfunctorily questioning Mm -hmm. Senator. Um, Mm -hmm. They're interesting in and of themselves. These, these actions, right? Uh, the yeah. children learn to cipher and to sing in a way they're sort of like poets, right? Yeah. You know, poets yeah. work in numbers nice. and they also, of course, work in song. Um, yeah. And cutting and sewing is a an action that Yeats associates with writing poetry in Adam's Curse. Yeah. Um, stitching and unstitching. Stitching and unstitching, right. So it's a strange uh, passage because he appears to be derogating these actions as uh, kind of trivial or, hmm. or, or conservative in, in some way. And yet, uh, yeah, that's and yet, it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yet they are in some 
primal sense bound up with what it is to be a poet. Um, uh huh. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. I love that. I, I love also how Cypher and Sing, you know, the, the you know, they, they, they start with the same consonant sound, though yeah. one is the C and one is an S, and then that's repeated and cut and so, except now the sounds are different, you know. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, there's a kind of interesting kind of parallel um, there. And in between, we get to study reading books in history. Yeah. Reading books is a funny word. That must be a term of art that must, you know, books... A, a particular, I mean, aren't all books reading books, but, um, it's a funny word. Yeah. Actually, there's a little, uh, thought in Hugh Kenner's book on, uh, and partly on Yates, where he talks about how reading books are, um, a designation for books that one would otherwise never read. <laughs> um, that, that is in, we're entirely in the realm of, uh, you know, obligatory yes. kind reading. You know? Oh, I guess the same, the same could be said of textbooks and, and for the same reason, aren't all <laughs> books right. textbooks. I've never thought of that before. Why have I never thought of that before? That's true. true. Um, the spectacle of this kind of, um, uh, compulsory yeah. know, forced reading, um, mm. to these, docile, um, obedient students sets mm-hmm. up um, the kind of spasms that follow in the poem, I think. Well, and speaking of which, or I th- sort of speaking of which, I mean, y- you pointed out earlier that this is a, um, you know, this is a modernist poet w- with the word modern in the poem. So here it is, to cut and sew, be neat and everything in the best modern way. That, that use of modern doesn't sound like what we associate with the kind of upheavals of you no. know, modernism. Um, so that, that word is meaning something else here. It's meaning what, like... Um, I think literally what it meant yeah. is these nuns were practicing a, a kind of Montessori method, believe uh-huh. it or not. They were sort of, it was a, oh, yeah? It was a yeah, it was a very liberal uh, school in order at the time. And the, um, uh, the pedagogy had been modernized, but yeah. there's disdain in that seems to me the best modern way. Yes, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, um, uh, you know, one could um, characterize varyingly the the kind of disdain or the mutedness of it or the um, implied extent of it. But um, I agree with you absolutely. Yeah. And I actually have a question, sort of about tone, um, which I feel as though you've you've already begun to address, but I just want to press on it a little harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- what are those um, children doing? The children's eyes, in momentary wonder, stare upon. And then the final line of the stanza is, in its entirety, a 60-year-old smiling public man. Yeah. Um, I think I heard you say earlier, Dan, that you took that last line to be signaling something of the um, a kind of authority or um, gravitas that in that moment Yeats might be seen to assume. I hear, I hear that. And I hear also in that line, there's something... Um, he feels a little ridiculous. Yeah, that's right. right? Um, is yeah. that right? Are you hearing that too? Sure, yeah. sure. You know, and elsewhere in this uh, volume, The Tower, he has, I believe it's in the poem, The Tower, he has this image of himself as, um, I think he calls himself an absurdity, right? It's yeah. just, this is uh, old age has been tied to me uh, mm-hmm. as to a dog's tail. Yeah. Um, I think those are the lines. And, 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 right. So yes, the, the, the absurdity of the, of the role that he's been consigned to play, agreed to play. Um, I think I hear it more your way than I, than mine really, yeah. because it motivates the next move in the poem. Well, to, right. So well, I was going to ask about that. So we move from his body to a very different kind of body. So say more. Yeah. But so now right. we move into stanza two. 
Well, it's a simpler point than that, but, I, but I'd love oh, to go on. Yeah. No, but the, the very simple thing is to say that the outward appearance gives no sense of the inner tonic, turmoil, layering, depositing imagination. Um, it, it, just one quick aside that sure. the, the um, several of the students that were there that, that day uh, were interviewed by Roy Foster in his biography. And oh, yeah. Yeah, and they all report wow. that uh, this was really a non-event to them. <laughs> That's perfect. This sixty-year-old <laughs> guy come through, which is just so true to. I don't know. We had dignitaries and politicians yeah. coming through our schools as kids. I don't know if you did, but yeah. Well, actually, I was thinking of it, of course. But you know who who visited my school was Buzz Aldrin. No kidding, Buzz Aldrin, wow. which I yeah. made an impression on me then, but sure. but I, I kind of wish I could go back to it and ask him some questions, right? You know, he's become um, a right, right winger, I believe. Is that right? Oh, I didn't know that. So oh, that right. that's not what my questions would have been. I know he's fond of like um, punching people who say that the moon landing was a hoax. Or oh whatever, yeah, you know, so that that part I know. Didn't punch any you you kids out though. No, no, that he did. He did not. Um, Anyway, it's funny. I mean, it's yeah. very, as we say, relatable that uh, suddenly <laughs> you, uh, you know, you look up and your teacher is introducing you to somebody who is apparently an eminence, but you're, yes. you're eight or nine or something. And- yeah. Well, and so what that reveals, I mean, in a way is, you know, what we have in the poem is the, 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 you know, I don't want to call him old, but older, older man, the sort of self-consciously older man who's in this room with this child, with these children and who, and who, th- who describes their attitude in viewing him as momentary wonder now even that might mean i don't know who is this ridiculous strange looking old guy you know or whatever um but he's he's kind of imagining their imaginations of him right um and and right as you say the implication here is that Oh, they must have no idea of the kinds of um, wild thoughts that are right. swirling around in my head. And yeah. so, so let's talk about some of those thoughts. He, he right. dreams right. of a Ledean body. Um, uh, people, you know, you, other people might know the, the, the sort of other, another famous poem by Yeats, um, yeah. Lita and the Swan. Right. So he's told that story once, but okay. But Dan, what should we, what should we notice about this dream of the Ledean body? Right. Well, it's interesting. Um, the poem that you mentioned, which is really a companion of this poem, is uh, also in the tower, and it's just it's just two pages away. It comes first. We read later in the Swan, and then there's another poem on a picture of a black centaur by Edmund Dulac, poem I don't really know, and then we get to among school children. So you know, try as you might wish to to. Um, moderate the content of among school children um, and sort of take some of the inappropriate sexual uh, sort of shadings of it out. You really can't because it's clear he wants you, at least in the volume where it was published, to come to this poem with the shock of Leda and the Swan still in your mind. So, and, and for people who don't know that poem, that poem is the sort of story, the, the mythological story of the rape of Leda right. by, by um, Zeus sort of in the form of a swan, right? Yes. Yeah. And it is a poem I, uh, for years taught, but have stopped teaching because it's too traumatic, actually, if there are mm-hmm. students in the class who have had a background with trauma or sexual 
assault. The poem is just simply too graphic. It's too, it's too good in a way. It's just, you were asked to imagine a woman being raped by an enormous uh, bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're given all the sensory apparatus and mm-hmm. tools to, to make that picture in your mind. So it's very, very, very frightening and disturbing poem. And so that's not directly in this poem, but no. you're, you're suggesting, and it's, Right. It's a it's a re, it's a totally reasonable suggestion that the reader of the poem would remember the other poem or in any case would know the story. Yeah. Um, or might well know the story. And so the dream of a Ledean body is that body is presumably one that is in Yeats's imagination, sort of yeah. vulnerable, but um in I don't know how to phrase this from again, from Yeats's point of view, perhaps um yeah. inviting of a kind of lurid uh, um rapacious yeah i think so gaze. yeah yeah i mean literally it's it's his muse and mm-hmm. um obsession mod gone mm-hmm. um there's a whole other branch of the sure. story that we could go down there yeah. but the simplest thing is to say is that this is now a decades-long obsession with a um a, a very beautiful very wealthy very it's very important to understand also that she was a political radical who mm-hmm. had, in Yeats's view, sacrificed uh, the pleasures of the body, the pleasures of um, improv- imp- imp- improvisational thought, yeah. uh, the, the necessity of um, feeling full response to the world. She'd given all those things yeah. in his mind out of a devotion to Irish right. national politics. Yeah. So, so, right. So this is, um, and it's, there's almost, it is a comical scenario. He proposes to her, I don't know how many, five, six times and yeah. is turned out every right. time they sleep together once he writes a poem back. But at this point, yes, he's in his mind, he's made a leap that is uncomfortable to track in when teaching the poem in the classroom, he sees the children and then he goes to this extremely sexualized, I think, image of Maud gone. I dream of a Ledean body bent above a sinking fire. And then he remembers, right. That she has told him some casual story about a day in her childhood when she was scolded a tale that she told of a harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy told and it seemed that our two natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy or else to alter plato's parable into the yoke and white of the one shell so that thought then takes him back into the classroom in this one of the strangest passages i think in the poem yes is where he kind of re-enters with the sort of right. overlay of the image of Maud Gan's childhood and of her yeah. trivial torment as a child. He then kind of reframes or reshoots the scene in the classroom. Um, right. So I'm just babbling on. No, no, no. You're doing so beautifully. And I, I actually wanted to, you to keep going, but let me see if I can um, uh, take the baton for a moment and and help us get there. Uh Right. It's, it's, it's really odd, right? So he's in the, he's in the classroom or he's in the schoolroom and looking at the children, suddenly his mind is thinking of this woman with whom he was obsessed. Yeah. Then he's thinking of a story she told in which she was a child. Yeah. Presumably like the age of the children 
uh, right. who, uh, whom he's among and, um, and, um, and remembering that the story, you know, there's this bit about Plato's parable and th- th- that's a reference to the, I mean, you can, you can find it. It's a, it's um, listeners, it's, but it's a reference to the symposium and to this theory offered in the sympo- symposium that would sort of explain sexuality or erotic love between men and women. But okay. He's, he's thinking of that moment. And then he's looking around again as though sort of blinkingly looking around at the children in the room and he's putting her at sort of trying to imagine Maud gun or whomever the, I mean, he doesn't name her in this poem, but that's right. You know, trying to put her into the schoolroom and wondering about her, you know, and it's, it's, yes, it's, 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 it's super odd. Um, I I don't know. So we're into the third stanza of the poem right now. Um, and thereupon my this is the way that stanza ends though dan maybe if you if you want to say something um earlier higher up in the stanza please feel free but and thereupon my heart is driven wild she stands before me as a living child yeah yeah it's wild Um, it almost sounds like yeah like a, a kind of um like a doll come to life or something a living child is even on its own such a strange phrase very weird, of yeah. course, and the parallels are drawn between the first stanza, where the children behold him as the aged, yeah. um, decrepit old old man. I'm gonna be 52 next week, so I won't say 60 <laughs> year old is an old man, but yeah. anyway. I think but then fair. that that um, focalization is reversed, so that now suddenly he's the one beholding the child as manifestation of his great. Um, erotic dream. Um, uh-huh. If you get this just a, a hair wrong, just a fraction yeah. wrong, the poem becomes just bad. <laughs> it seems uh, to be. What I do you mean, mean by also, that? Say more. Well, I, I, again, maybe because this is such a poem about pedagogy, I and because I have taught the poem many times, though never written about it, um, I'm always thinking about what would the response be to my gloss on this stanza. And I, from a, from my students, now I should mention that I teach at a, we say historically women's college. So, you know, most of the students in my class identify as women and, um, they're rightly, (laughs) they would be rightly skeptical of such a quite sexist, what it might appear, um, passage, Mm -hmm. fantasy, um, but y- you know, I, I, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, yeah. the logic I think is very important to track, to evade that critique, um, mm. uh, because I don't, wouldn't want the poem to shut down at that, at that moment. I, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't shut down. I don't no. think. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Yeah. In the, in the fourth stanza, her present image floats into the mind. Right. Um, here yeah, she is Madgman, herself in her, you know, fifties at this point. Yeah. And again, by Yates's account has practically starved herself and, um, self-flagellated herself into a state of, um, of, uh, disarray, uh, and, 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 right. Her present mm-hmm. image floats into the mind. Did Quattrocento 14th century painters, he had Da Vinci in an earlier draft. Did Quattrocento finger fashion it 
hollow of cheek as though it drank the wind and took a mess of shadows for its meat. He has a lot of images of folks who are sustained only by political commitment. They don't have the sustenance of the body or of um, the intellect um, and appear to be yeah. almost starved by their political commitments. I think that's where this is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. It, it, it seems to me also like her, as you've described it for us, um, her image in his mind is something that he's like um, mm-hmm. constantly working over and refashioning and reimagining through, you know, sort of back right. and forth and back and forth through ages of, of life. But as a, as a kind of, I mean, the example, perhaps because you mentioned Da Vinci, um, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of what, what I have in mind as I say, this is a kind of, um, sketch, um, you know, with its, um, contours that are, um, kind of searching for the, the, the form that the artist has in mind. It's as though, I mean, to me, that's what, the image of her is like in yeah. his imagination. Um, and then, and then we sort of emerge from that to enough of that better to smile on all that smile and show there is a comfortable kind of old scarecrow. Right. Yeah. And those are the obligations of the social sphere reasserting themselves yeah. um, as though you could, this is this powerful, you know, sort of technicolor fantasy, but he could s- sort of just shut it off, you know, just kind of talk turn yeah. the switch off and walk out that room and into the back into reality. Um, yeah. This comfortable kind it, of scarecrow is, is of course before the, the, the wizard of Oz scarecrow, but that's, yeah. you know, what I, yeah, you know, there's another comfortable one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, what's almost comical about it is that that effort to dismiss the mm-hmm. internal reverie is, uh, well, fails really because, the that's the last really that we hear of you know the kind of filmable scenario of Yeats in the classroom the poem from that moment forward yeah right so like as I, as I as I said earlier that weird, yeah that that's where the eye you know makes it's, its exit right in other words you know and and now he's he's sort of thinking about his mother um or a, an early or a youthful mother or yeah yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's thinking, I did, it did occur to me rereading this poem, you know, my own mom um, mm-hmm. was very good friends with the Sisters of Mercy and she used to <laughs> go and hang out with them. And that, that it's, it struck me reading this poem that, you know, that it is taken as commonplace and normal, but it is very odd that there are people in modern society who absent themselves from the pleasures mm-hmm. of the body, mm-hmm. um, who vow chastity, who vow celibacy. And um, somehow he has to think about that paradox that in he, he, here he is, this figure of almost embodied passion and desire walking among women who have forsworn all, all of those, all of those essential human, um, feelings and activities. So Mm. I guess he's thinking about his own mother because the question in the simplest form that he asks is if my mother could see me now looking all haggard and defeated and discouraged and 
weather, yeah. weather and so on, would she still do? Would she still have done it? Would it still? Would it be compensation for um, the pang of my birth, yeah. of of his birth? Right. Right. So the simplest version of the question is: What youthful mother, um, seeing the baby upon her lap, would would if she saw this older guy think that the pain of giving birth mm-hmm. and the worry and anxiety of watching a child grow up and become independent, if the outcome is only old age and decrepitude and mm-hmm. weatheredness, mm-hmm. Wh- why, why go through that ordeal in the first place? Um, and yeah, you know, what, what, what this is making me think of Dan is like, the, to, to go back to that, one of the earliest points you made is like the length of the schoolroom. It's long in the way, <laughs> what I'm imagining now, sorry, I'm making um, hand gestures here. <laughs> it's long in the way like an accordion is long, like it oh, stretches yeah. out, but then it kind of compresses it, you know, keeps right. sort of moving back and forth. Yeah. Like, you know, he's, he's done it with Maud Gunn, right? Um, imagining her then imagining her as a child then putting that child in this school room then imagining her again yeah um and now he's doing it with himself he's a baby he's a 60 year old man he's imagining his mother sort of having a view of that whole progression in yeah a way. and this sentence is that kind of long school room it yeah. manages to comprehend and include both the child the baby the infant and the current, present, weathered, decrepit self, you know, yeah. manages to organize it into one, into one really complex sentence. Yeah. Um, this is a famous, so just to maybe to back up from the line by line explication for a moment, um, I, I was going to ask you a question, which is, which is prompted by the only note in my copy mm-hmm. of the poem the note is on the phrase honey of generation. Oh yeah. And I remember actually in the Norton anthology of poetry, which I carried around with me, I remember that there was a note on, on that phrase in that volume as well. And it's Yeats's own gloss right. on the phrase. And it sends you down an unbelievable rabbit hole where you encounter a Neoplatonist philosopher named Porphyry. And the Cave of the Nymphs. The Cave of the Nymphs, right. And uh, you can find that online in a 1917 translation, which is, I'll bet, the one that Yeats read. But it's a long, wild, arcane digression upon a very obscure passage in Homer that describes this is an an explanatory note in the style of like Eliot in the wasteland in a way, right? That's where I was going. Like a MacGuffin. So what, yeah, exactly. A MacGuffin. So why, yeah. Why is this one? I don't uh, know. Yeah. uh, Honey, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a hard to parse moment in the poem, even, even if you're not troubled by illusion or whatever. I know. Youthful mother, a shape upon her lap, honey of generation had betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. It's connected. I know this only from scholars and critics, Mm -hmm. but it's, but it's, you know, that honey of generation is thought to be the, you know, semen is thought to be the, Right. And um, it's, you know, it's connected with the generational substance of, of procreation. 
and I guess betrayed has an old sense of um, of um, I don't know how do we put it. Uh, how do you take betrayed? Um, well, I don't know. I, I sorry. So I was um, I was not taking it in the first. Pl- so uh, uh, cards on the table here. The line is sort of obscure to me, so I'm I'm yeah, you know, I'm okay. struggling with it a bit. But it, but having said that, I mean I'm happy to think about it in real time. I I had um, I had not taken betrayed in the sense of a kind of um, ethical betrayal, but as a kind of um, revelation. You know, revelation. when you, when you <laughs> sort of betray your um, yes, you know, I don't know. Revelation right. is the best word I have for it. Yeah, yeah, or even a, a softer sense of it is just it's an outcome, right? Honey mm-hmm. of Generation had betrayed, had yeah. presented, right? Um, Honey of Generation also seems to me like I mean it, it's sort of anticipating perhaps that kind of famous final. Um, I mean, this stanza in a way is linked for me to the final stanza, yes, because of you know the pangs of birth and then labor, which comes yeah. up, which is the first word of the final stanza. Um, but also honey of generation sounds like um, I, I wasn't aware of the semen um, thing though. I'll, I'll trust the Yates scholars on that. Um, it, you know, it seems to me like, um, uh, you know, I don't know. Honey seems like a, you know, the sort of sweet byproduct of um, a kind of, <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, this is getting very lurid, but of, um, of, of a kind of creative act or something, yes. you know, that's uh, what I'm picturing. Yeah. yeah. Our minds are in the gutter, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's made no simpler by the following, um, line, of course, yeah. and that must sleep, shriek, shriek, struggle to escape as recollection or the drug decide, there's some complex. That sounds like a, a wriggling, writhing baby who's yeah. you know, fussing or something. Totally <laughs> does to me. Um, it needs um, needs Harvey Karp and the five S's. <laughs> <laughs> Get that baby on its side. Right, right, exactly. Anyway, go on. Um, again, there's some complex, nested, layered arcana here happening that draws us right back into the treatise by Porphyry that I Mm -hmm. don't have a mastery of, but it is, we will duly note that these are very difficult lines. And then suddenly a very arresting, I think, thought would think her son, did she but see that shape, the shape on her lap, the, the baby, the infant with 60 or more winters on its head, a compensation for the, for the pang of his birth or the uncertainty of his setting forth. And those yeah. lines are just as clear as can be and are very moving to me. Totally. Yeah. And it's like a moment in, in, in where in the mother's imagination that those years compress, right? And, right. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's sort of granting to her a kind of vision of a life sped up and all at once or, or overlaid, that yeah. old age overlaid on youth. Exactly. And, 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 th- and then he kind of launches into this, um, very different stanzas we were saying earlier, a kind of rapid fire um, narration of yeah. Plato to Aristotle and so on. Yeah. And um, he'll do that often. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of poems at this stage of Yeats's career where there's just, um, you know, passages with sort of uh, ironically or sort of disrespectfully summarized wisdom. Um, and the sort of, I guess the sort of payout of it is the final line of the stanza old clothes upon old sticks to scare a bird, which implies that, you know, no matter how 
um, impassioned one's philosophical system or how, um, how um, mm-hmm. diligently worked out one's thought is bodily decrepitude is wisdom, as Yeats says in another poem, really, uh-huh. it all ends up in the same uh, thinking always ends up embodied and bodies always age and bodies finally die. So yeah, that is our, um, the return of our scarecrow. Um, yes. Right. To disparage the great, the great classical philosophers. Right. Right. Um, and, and Yeats is always thinking about old age and tattered clothes and sort yeah. of, you know, um, or I think of the line, there's more enterprise in walking naked. Right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. From, from, uh, the circus animals desertion. Yeah. Um, the seventh stanza, not to, to skip too swiftly over the sixth, but um, the seventh stanza starts with this. Um, I mean, what it's like the opposite of the difficulty we were having before. It's such a direct and kind of plain and, yes. and um, arresting line. Both nuns and mothers worship images. Right. Yes. It's like a shocking line in a way. I know. Yeah. Well, partly it, 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 it's so helpful in reframing the murk that we've just passed through, you know, yeah. I mean, really he's surfacing and he's helping us to surface in his thinking, yeah. I think. And um, um, I, I think the, the sixth stanza is, this is, sounds disrespectful, but it's in some ways the weakest stanza, mm-hmm. but we need a lull there. I think we need mm-hmm. some light, refreshment we need sort of a you know palate cleanser or something before we get to this just astonishing um finale and you're 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 right the thinking there is so arresting and so clear and we're in the position of having something very complex explained to us which is a great pleasure i think you know yeah oh that's a lovely way to put it and it returns us in a way to what you were describing earlier as the kind of pedagogical right um um you know mode of the poem or the um what you might might be intimating now are the are the pedagogical pleasures of the poem um either either to to explain a thing a a delicate or a, a complex thing yeah. Well, brings a kind of pleasure. Yeah. Um, but to have it have it explained to you might bring a kind of commensurate sort of pleasure. And it's not normally what we think that a that a poem would do. I mean, you know, it, it one one some sometimes is I think there's a kind of instinctive thing to say that a, a poem that's being pedagogical is it's misunderstanding its its primary task or it's doing yeah. something too simple or Over explaining yeah or yeah but um but the lesson here is a a strange and mysterious one so so maybe that saves it from that particular um complaint um say more about yeah i mean now as we move into the kind of final stanzas of the poem and the which are again to remind people the two stanzas that as dan was pointing out earlier suddenly span where where a a sentence sort of leaps over the the um, gap as it were between stanzas seven and eight so i think it makes sense to think of these as a unit at least in some ways um say more about how that lesson begins or how it's set up or you know i I, i'm gonna follow you here dan yeah yeah well, I think that it's a moment where you realize that your own 
errancy and waywardness and just being slightly lost in the logic of the poem, Yeats has anticipated that um, problem. And um, he's set up a very difficult acrobatics for himself in this poem, I think. And he, you know, not to be too cheesy, but he wants to kind of stick the landing, you know, I mean, his, his leaps of thought and sort of leaps of rhetoric and leaps of image really uh, depend on their being this spectacular a finish, uh, I think. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to fall too much into just explication, but it is such a hard poem that you find yourself. I think so. I think some of it is worthwhile here. So, so let's, let's, let's say a little bit about. Well, we've been, we've been introduced to the deprivations of the nuns, Mm -hmm. um, the negations of sex and of desire and um, also of the necessity of disappointment of mothers. And so maybe nuns roughly correspond to a cautious relationship to desire Mm -hmm. uh, and to passion, just ruling it out from the start. Mothers who go through the drama of desire and procreation have as a result the almost certain disappointment of seeing their children's lives unfold in ways that are um, um, that fall short of their first hopes and expectations. So those are two zones that we've been introduced to in the poem. It seems as though, um, you know, for Yeats, like what's required of motherhood um, is such an intense kind of, um, um, care or attention or right. love that it that it it almost inevitably leads to the production of an image yeah an image of the thing you love rather than the thing itself which has its own life and is going right. to wriggle away eventually right that's right so that and even if the life isn't disappointing it's a disappointment perhaps to you at some level that's that's as the mother yeah i think that's that's beautiful and then the important intervention here is when Yeats says both nuns and mothers worship images, but those that the, those that the, that those the candles light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries, but keep a marble or a bronze repose. And then here's the intervention. And yet they too break hearts, mm. you know, and that leap, that insight, I think is what kind of catalyzes the remarkable conclusion of the poem where you have this, sort of compound apostrophe, you know, you've five, I think five O's in quick succession, O presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, Mm -hmm. and that all heavenly glory symbolize, O self-born mockers of man's enterprise. Um, And then the apostrophe sort of pause while the lesson starts coming in, right? Or the thing he wants to say. Right. He's almost invoked presences that will speak the lesson through him maybe does that how how you hear uh, it yeah uh, i don't i don't i don't um yes maybe i think that's right uh, now that you put it that way i i hadn't I, i'm not sure that i would have said that but I, that feels right yes that he's uh, all 
you know, in a way that's not perhaps too dissimilar from the way one might invoke a muse or yeah. something like that at the, you know at the beginning of an epic poem or whatever, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, you're invoking the presences to speak through you in some in some way, and and what they have to convey is the final stanza, labor. Um, Dan, why don't you read the final stanza for us once from, from beginning to end, and then we can talk sure. about it. Yeah, I'll read the last two, actually. Okay. Uh, Both nuns and mothers worship images, but those the candles light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries, but keep a marble or a bronze repose. And yet they too break hearts. Oh, presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, and that all heavenly glory symbolize O self-born mockers of man's enterprise. Eight, labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Yeah. So I want to think about labor and what labor means right. to, to Yeats here. Labor is what a mother undergoes to mm-hmm. um, deliver a child. Yeah. But it's also, of course, the work that goes into the stitching and unstitching or the cutting and sewing. Well, or the... you, yeah. I mean, you've just, I was going to say, since you brought up Adam's curse earlier, but then you just did again. Yeah. Um, in that poem, there are the lines, um, right. Again, are they mod guns or her friends? Uh, sorry. To be born woman is to know. Yes. Though they do not speak of it at school, that one must labor to be beautiful. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And that's yeah. a, that's a poem also right about the sort of biblical curse and, 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 you know, for those who aren't up on their Genesis, right? What Eve is, Eve's mm-hmm. punishment f- from God in Genesis is that, um, is labor pain, yes. you know? Yes. Um, um, which is, you know, pres- you know, bad enough in itself, but presumably emblematic of all other kinds of, um, diminishment or, or fall. Um, yeah. Um, so, but, but for Yeats, labor sounds different here, right? Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul. Right. Right. And then he, so he's telling us what it's not, but, 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 but that presumably what we might have mistaken it to be, right? Right. Yes. Nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear eyed wisdom. I mean, I'm, I'm emphasizing the, the negations here, but not because I think that's how it ought to be read, but just to draw out some of the logic of it, nor yes. beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. So it's none of those things. Dan, do you have a way of sort of um, glossing what those things amount to? Like what, what should we be disabused of according to Yates? Well, I guess my sense of it is that the um, natural process of giving birth um, is not a, you know, staged process, um, that a scholar or a poet might go through. A poet has to feel heartache, has to feel disappointment. 
in order to. So that might be like the blear-eyed wisdom of, min, of midnight oil. That's what our students yeah, think, are well, suffering maybe the through right now. Maybe the yeah. beauty born out of its own despair is the poet's version of the problem. Right. Maybe the blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil might be the scholar or philosopher's mm-hmm. version of the problem. Mm-hmm. That there is a, mm-hmm. um, a just a wearing down, a wearing out of the of the self in order to create the end product. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is some different conception where the outcome is already present at the start, or there is no sort of temporal phased process yeah. of gradual yeah. uh, learning or gradual labor or gradual commitment uh-huh. that that ruins you, that makes you into a 60-year-old right. smiling public uh-huh. man, you know, all uh-huh. the all the evidence of wear and all the evidence of work and all the evidence of disappointment and discouragement that Yates is just mean evidences. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the opposite of of that somehow. And we look for examples of it, maybe not in poets or philosophers, but in nature or in uh, an entirely physical um, medium where the body is itself the medium, like a dancer. Right. Um, yeah, that's know. beautiful. So I, I love that. Yeah. So right. So to bring us back, so we we had those earlier invocations, oh presences, oh self born mockers, and then the the beginning of the of the you know again not to um, oversimplify things, but the the kind of delivery of the lesson. Yeah, and then it's interrupted again with additional invocations—the ones that Dan was just referring to. Oh, chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? Oh, body swayed to music. Oh, brightening glance. Um, I loved what you said earlier, uh, just a moment ago, Dan, about the about dance as a kind of art form in which the. Um, it's true. It's I had not thought of it in these terms apart from now, I guess, in this poem, which I've known for almost forever, it seems like. But dance yeah. is the art form in which the in which the labor, you know, a poet sits down and writes and scribbles and scratches their head and so forth, and then they give you yeah. the poem, and the poem is sort of separate from them. A musician yeah. plays the music, but it's it's sort of projected out into the world, you know, apart from them. The dancer is the canvas, right? Or the, right. But, but is also the artist, you know. So there's a kind of n- lack of separation between those two things. Yeah, yeah. I think we're given all of these tableau of you know, uh, artists and practitioners who deny the evidence of the body in order to get to the, um, in order to get to beauty or to get to wisdom, and then we're given this alternate idea, whether it's the body of the tree or the body of the dancer, that um, the correct route, if we're going to get back to sort of pedagogy and lesson delivering, um, the correct way to think about maybe poetry um, is, yeah, it's, 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 it's not those frustrated pursuits, but this very natural, uh, exfoliation of of the of the self into 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 movement um in a way i think the best thing in the poem is oh brightening glance oh i was i was just about to ask you about that because that was what i that's what i was noticing this time um well i think that takes something about it 
Yeah. Well, to me, that's the moment of insight that uh, we're we're thinking about we're thinking about thinking as being like dancing. And there's the moment when a dancer's body turns in a particularly crisp or particularly sumptuous way. And the equivalent in thought is that, that, that brightening, you know, that, that glance, that, that epiphany, that realization. In in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go, go, go. Yeah. No, no, that's both a necessary part. It's not separate from the process. Yeah. But it's a uh, it's a highlight of the of the process. Um, yeah. What, what what I was going to say, yeah, is that in a, in a way, it's like as you started to say, you know, oh, what I think the best thing in the poem is, and and I felt myself knowing slash hoping I knew what you were about to say because I was feeling it too. I mean, what's funny is that in that a way, same, what was about that same phrase? Yes, about that same phrase. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what's funny about it is that, you know, in a way that like what we were experiencing there was our own version of the brightening glance. I mean, to me, it's that moment where you're talking to somebody and they're saying something and you suddenly anticipate what's coming and it's a beautiful thing and you feel a kind of recognition because a glance is something that has to happen between people, I think. Right. 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 That's right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and brightening the kind of um, gerundive form there makes it sort of ha- magically happening in the present. In the moment, you know. Right. Yeah. The present. Right. And That's and, right. And, yeah, and, and 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 yeah. And then the final. You know, those final two. You know, of course, all of the all of the um, stanzas share a rhyme scheme. But the you know that 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 the brightening glance that glance rhymes on dance. Yes. You know. It, um, I don't know, there's something kind of just right about it, that it's sort of capturing, it's both kind of capturing a dancer's pose, but also kind of giving the impression that that, that it's in, it's in a kind of motion, you know, it's like a tree that's swaying or a body that's swaying in the breeze, you know, it's sort of rooted, but moving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel, uh, you, the first question you asked, which is sort of what did you feel when you were reading yeah. the poem aloud? And I said, well, I was kind of monitoring my own performance because I knew what yeah. was coming. I knew that we had to yeah. do something with this great, very famous conclusion. Maybe it's the most famous line in all of Yeats um, or lines. And, um, you know, there's something curious about how beautiful they are, but how I don't know. It's like a song you've heard too many times or something, you know, it's, I, I have trouble lifting it into thought. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's uh, intuition, yeah. it's instinct, it's bodily in a way. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that's beautifully said. And in a way that's like sort of expressing the, the difficulty that um, Yeats is describing as a kind of great mystery of the separation of a, um, um you know the um the vehicle from its tenor somehow you know totally um totally. well um dan jason um I, i'm so grateful for the chance to have talked with you about this poem which i feel like i know in a different way having had the conversation with you and i and i'm it was I'm, so much fun really it was so that. much fun thank you and uh, yeah no thanks for inviting me and um thanks for doing this we're creating this archive of really spectacular discussions so thank you
Yeah, well, I and and it's just happening because I'm talking to people that I want to talk to. So um, it's Sweet. it's been a re, it's been a revelation to me, and and I'm so grateful that I got to include you in it. So so thank you, and and thanks to to our listeners for hanging out with us for the last um, 90 minutes. So <laughs> we went long, um, and um, and uh, yeah, again, thank you so much, and stay tuned. We'll have we'll have more for you soon. Be well, everyone.